Uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, if you haven't already turned there. And uh, I'm going to do a, a little bit of, um, of last week's stuff just to bring us up to date. Most of you were here last week, but we always have visitors or people that weren't. And so just to sort of connect to what we're doing here, we're starting a, a new study on 1 Corinthians and Paul's writings. We're going to go right through the, all of the writings. But in 1 Corinthians last week, we did three verses. And I want to read them to you with a little emphasis so that we'll be reminded what we learned last week. So verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 1 reads this way, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Now, what's significant about this is that uh, when you received a letter, we'll just leave it that way, in that day, the opening of the letter always identified the person uh, that was writing the letter. Like we tend to write letters where we'll say, Dear John or Dear Mary, but uh, if I was writing a letter today, I'd say, Carl, uh, called to be a pastor and all that kind of stuff. So Paul is identifying himself, and especially that he's an apostle who has tremendous amount of power in that day and authority, and he was made an apostle by Jesus himself. And then he has a man with him while he's doing this named Sosthenes, who is probably his amanuensis. It's a fancy word for sort of like secretary, who's writing down all the things that Paul is to say. And then uh, to the church of God, verse 2, of God, the church of God. We made a big deal of that last week. It's not the church of Paul. It's not the church of Pastor Carl or Pastor Jim. Or It's the church of God. Uh, we are the church, and it's God's church. And it's the church of God in Corinth who he's writing to, although it will be relevant to us today also. So to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. And again, we're going to talk about the word sanctified again today. And it shows that when we become a Christian, uh, we are set apart for God's purpose. That's what the word holy means. And then he says, it's not just to those people in Corinth, but together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And last week, we talked about the phrase uh, that everyone who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, they didn't call themselves Christians right away. Instead, uh, the name for them most was those who called on the name of Jesus. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's a good that's a good phrase to underline when you're saying, I'm a Christian, I called in the name of the Lord. And then in verse 3, we have the word grace and peace, which we'll talk about again today, especially grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace always comes before peace. There's the peace of God where we're no longer enemies of God, and then there's uh, the, the, the peace with God, that peace that's beyond understanding. It's just an amazing peace that you know you're saved. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the introduction from last week. And now we're going to start at verse 4. So in your Bibles, look at verse 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It reads, I always thank God for you, Corinthian Christians, because of his grace given you, in Christ Jesus. Now, grace means 
that you've received something that you didn't deserve, but you received it. And Paul is thanking them because there's proof that they've received it, and you'll see the proof in a moment. Now, the name of Jesus as Lord or Messiah is used 12 times in the first 18 verses of 1 Corinthians. It's actually the theme of the letter. That's why I've called it the Jesus way. Paul may have to say some strong things, but he wants Jesus to be the center of the message. Now, it's right to correct wrong doctrine or wrong behavior, but ultimately, if we don't belong to Jesus and respect Jesus and desire to serve him, no amount of correction will be lasting. Now, N.T. Wright said something about grace that I think fits here. He says this, Grace is one of those little words that contains a whole universe of meaning, summing up the fact that God loved them, the Corinthians in this case, and us too, and acted decisively on our behalf and their behalf, even though they had done nothing whatever to deserve it, but rather the opposite. And that's why we're going to study the letter, to see what they had done wrong. A remarkable picture of Paul's character comes out in this verse as he gives sincere thanks for the Corinthian believers. He really means it. He gives thanks for the grace evident in them because of the multitude of gifts that God has given them. And they were misusing these gifts, and Paul will deal with that while always recognizing that the gifts were for the purpose of glorifying God. Oh, he may have to rebuke them strongly in the letter, but he loves them and is truly thankful for their witness as Christians. Just something I want to say at the beginning here uh, as we're studying this. Uh, one of the problems in the church you're going to see in a moment is disunity. And then we're going to see as we study along all kinds of other problems. And in fact... At Calvary Chapel of Sarasota, we don't have that problem. We really don't. Oh, I'm sure there's somebody here that, and I wonder, wonder why he comes here or whatever, <laughs> that kind of thing, a little bit here and there. But well, we're not guilty of most of the things that they're guilty of. So in a way, our study is going to be uh, sort of a, a, a rehearsing of what we're supposed to already know and a strengthening of ourselves as a group of people, as Christians, as a church, uh, so that we'll never become like that. So verse 5, Paul says, uh, here's why, because, or for in him, you Corinthian Christians, particularly, have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. And that the speech and the knowledge represent a couple of gifts that we're going to learn about later. Now, here's just sort of a little bit of a warning for you. When we get to 2 Corinthians, chapter 8 and 9, I'll be speaking for probably at least two weeks, maybe three, on giving. Isn't that exciting? Giving your money. And I'll, t I'll teach you how to give even more money when we get to those chapters. Nevertheless, there's one verse in the middle of chapter 8, uh, between chapter 8 and 9 and chapter 8. That it just thrills me to think about it, and I want you to understand it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It's about grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's stop there just for a moment. 
I've been spending extra time just finding out everything I can about the word grace. The word grace is linked to the, to the idea of joy, the, the feeling of delight. Uh, Jesus uh, went to the cross, the Bible tells us in Hebrews, for the joy set before him. So in reality, even though it seems counterintuitive, he was looking forward to the joy, the delight of what was going to happen that we were going to receive when he went to that cross. And so that we can receive that kind of grace, that kind of joy, and that kind of delight that no matter what the problems that we have in our life, no matter how severe they may be, we can choose joy because that's part of the grace that God has given us. But look what he says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and though he was rich, now everybody likes the word rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, we need to take this personally, through his poverty might become rich. Now, you know he's not talking about money. I mean, he was in heaven, in the Godhead with the Father. And now he has come to earth as a human being. I mean, my goodness, the, the greatest place you could imagine anywhere on earth is nothing compared to heaven. So he literally came to the poverty of the way we live on this earth, but especially the poverty of, uh, of the lack of the riches of spiritual reality. And then so he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich just like he was in heaven, meaning that we have the richest, every spiritual richness that you can imagine now and forever. And that's the picture of grace here. And that's why Paul is able to treat these Corinthians so wonderfully at the beginning and then get strong and clear at the end when he convinces them of his love for them. Now in verse 6, look again. God, okay, what he said for in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech, with all knowledge. Therefore, really, God, you've confirmed our testimony about Christ among you. In other words, here's what he's saying. God thus confirming our gospel, that's the testimony, the good news about Jesus, about Christ, among you because of all the gifts that he has poured out on you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. In other words, you are well-equipped as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. That's the second coming. Paul was affirming the Corinthian believers in their ongoing sanctification. Now, we did three words last time. Justification, that's an important word. When you are saved, when you become a Christian, when God looks at you, it's just as if you had never sinned now. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Sanctification, that's the process of becoming perfect. Oh, we're never going to be perfect in this life, but the process of growth, that's why all kinds of things come into our life uh, to get us into a place where we can become more and more godly. And we will become more and more godly if we follow the Lord right up until that last moment when we are perfected. That's called glorification. That's when we'll be in heaven. And so Paul was affirming the Corinthian believers in their ongoing growth, their sanctification. 
God will see to it that they will finally arrive in heaven and God has given them everything they need to persevere to the end, or I like to say, to the beginning of an eternity with Jesus in heaven. And then he says to them further, verse 8, he will keep you firm. Some of your Bibles would say, and it's just as good a word, he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second coming. And then these three words are wonderful. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We talk about fellowship a lot. We use the word koinonia. That's the Greek word. It means that we need to fellowship together. We need to, uh, to come together, eat together, enjoy one another, uh, and use our various gifts to help us all grow together. But here he's saying, besides that, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with Jesus. We're in fellowship with Jesus. Christianity is a relationship with Jesus, the living Jesus Christ. Now, notice in verse 9, if we take the first word God and leave out the next two words, it says, who has called you? Last week, we started by pointing out that the Corinthian believers were called of God the same way Paul was called to be an apostle. They were called to have fellowship with God, with God's Son, Jesus. And the confirmation of all that is the proof of God's faithfulness. So, Paul now handles the first of many problems in the church, and I've already given it away, disunity. They must become unified before they can must become unified before they can truly solve their differences about how God works in their lives. Verse 10. First two words are really important. I appeal, Paul says, to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is an apostle. He has authority. In Romans chapter 12, you know the verse as well, I'm sure, uh, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to give yourselves as living sacrifices. He could have said, I command it of you. This is what the Lord wants. You better do this. No, no, he didn't say that. He said, I urge you. That's what he's doing here, too. I, the Apostle Paul, he'd already written it by Jesus Christ, appeal to you. He doesn't use his authority. He's exhorting them. He's not demanding so I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united, don't forget those two words, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, first off, Paul uses the phrase brothers and sisters more times in this letter than any other one that he wrote. He wanted the Christian community at Corinth to understand how important it was that they saw themselves as family members. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, two verses. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. That's the cross. Therefore, honor God 
with your body. Romans chapter 12. Every time I teach Romans chapter 12, verse 5, I always say this is an anti-American verse. (laughs) Here it is. So in Christ, we who are many, that's the church, that's all of us, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. You're kidding. I belong to him, her. That's right. We belong to one another. We're pieces in that puzzle I talk about so often. Paul does not want them to be exactly the same. That's not the idea. Christian fellowship doesn't demand uniformity, but agreement within diversity. Now, I mentioned the word perfectly united here in verse 10. The NIV translates it perfectly united. It's translating a Greek word that is used for mending fishing nets. It pictures the people being knit together. And then in verse 11, he goes on. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me, and all of a sudden now this is being read in the church. Oh, no, they've talked to Chloe. Uh, Some in Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, that's Peter. Still another says, I've got a Bible with red letters in it, and that's the words of Jesus, and they're the only words that I read. I don't read those other verses. Well, don't picture this as Paul leading one group, Apollos an opposing group. That's not the idea. Picture it as various believers using the teachings of each of these men to push their unique view of what it means to follow Jesus. They had turned the teaching of all these men, including Jesus himself, into an argument. It had not yet caused the church to break up into clear-cut divisions, but that would be the end result. The Corinthian church was still one family, but Paul could see the danger. He imagined somebody saying, unless you agree completely with my view of whatever, we cannot have fellowship together. You're wrong, and I'm right. So now Paul starts preaching. Verse 13. Here's where his sermon starts to roll. Is Christ divided? Is he cut up in little pieces? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul when you did your baptism? Did they say, in the name of Paul, I baptize you? Well, I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, I forgot. Okay, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, he believed in baptism. But the gospel isn't baptism. The gospel's the cross. And so he says, I didn't, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach, to herald, to announce the good news about Jesus. And not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, those two words, wisdom and eloquence, are very important. It was part of the problem in the church. Sophia and Logos is how you say them. And wisdom was rhetoric or, uh, or reason, the world's reason, and all kinds of strong reasoning in a splashy way. 
So there were orators of that day that could hold any audience on any subject they would choose, and you could, you're just on the edge of your seat. Paul says, I didn't come that way. You see, wisdom, the Greek wisdom of the day was the problem in the Corinthian church. They had become more enamored with rhetoric, with worldly reason, rather than the simplicity of the gospel. The Corinthian church was struggling with its spiritual blessings. There was much access during their meetings, but they were far from a dead church. They wanted to do right. So Paul will correct their excesses and prove their view of wisdom is worldly and not spiritual. In all he has to say, he never stopped loving the Corinthian church, the people in that church. When Paul is finished, he will still be thanking God for this church, and they'll continue to grow in the grace of God. Therefore, this church, the Corinthian church, gives us, this morning, the opportunity to view a people overflowing with spiritual riches as they struggle to use their gifts to the glory of God. In the meantime, no one, no one is running away from the church. No one is starting their own thing. No one is switching churches. Blomberg writes, it's also important to note that Paul speaks to the church collectively. In our day of so many Lone Ranger Christians, it is important to recall that neither here nor elsewhere does Scripture envisage Christians apart from a local church. So God is also in the process of perfecting his people corporately as well as individually. I believe 1 Corinthians, more than any other letter Paul wrote, makes it clear how important we are to one another. The rest of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 4 will outline how we can achieve the unity and family relationships that are necessary for true spirituality, how important we are to one another. William Barclay writes, Paul addresses his letter to those who have been called in the company of those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. The Christian is called into a community whose boundaries include all earth and all heaven. It would be greatly to our good if sometimes we lifted our eyes beyond our own little circle and thought of ourselves as part of the church of God, which is as wide as the world. We're part of something huge all over the world. So Paul is uncovering the problem of some in Corinth who think their worldly wisdom is better than Paul's simple message of the cross. Now look at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, that's us now and to them, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... He's quoting the book of Isaiah. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Now, Isaiah was warning the people of his day, the people of God, to not use their wisdom to protect themselves against the Assyrians who were coming into the northern kingdom and were much more powerful. Uh, this was a powerful enemy and it frightened them. 
And uh, so what they did is rather than trusting God's wisdom, they made alliances with Egypt to protect themselves rather than trusting God. And it was a catastrophe. Their wisdom was foolishness. And Paul sees the statement in Isaiah, Isaiah being fulfilled in the cross. So now look at verse 20. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law, the scribe? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, its philosophers and religious thinkers and politicians and leaders, through its wisdom did not know him. I've used this phrase so often in the last couple of years. They forgot God. That's what he's saying here. The Corinthian believers were actually boasting using the wisdom of the world as if they had more intellectual understanding than even Paul. Romans chapter 1 proves that all the world is able to, to do is create idols to represent their wrong conception of God. Without the Spirit of God, no one can understand the workings of God. It's very important you understand that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The person without the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and here's the key word, and cannot, is not able to understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So how do people come to believe the gospel, if that's true? It was Freud who made popular the idea that God was simply a projection of our own human ideas of what we wanted God to be. I believe Freud was absolutely correct. If, if it's up to our own human thinking, then regardless of the information creation gives us, we will come up with an idea of God, or a God, that falls far short of who God really is. Then we enter into a competitive race of religions to prove that my religion is better than yours, or my concept of how, uh, what life means is better than yours. Creation is more than enough to show us. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities. I like to stop and just think about this. When it was written, what they could see, and now what we can see. And the more we discover, the more that this makes sense. And so when we look at all of the, the universe that we can see now, or the universes, the countless numbers of them, and the way it's all held together, uh, then we have to see that we have no excuse for not knowing God. Unbelief is always willful. Everyone has decided, if not in their speech, in the way they live life, everyone has a view of God or no God. Some loudly proclaim their view. Paul lived in a time overrun with philosophers and religious people. But without the message of the cross, whatever Freudian view they manage only proves their foolishness. Just look up into the skies. Someone, an invisible, powerful God, had to create all that and then keep it together. 
the moon these last three nights especially has been spectacular at night. And uh, my, our, uh, our bedroom is right where we can see the moon uh, through the window. And I opened up the blinds this last uh, couple of nights because it's, it lights, it was so bright, it just lights up the whole room. It's amazing. And it's right as I'm lying there, it's right there. And when I wake up in the morning, it's now right there. Every morning, even if there's clouds over it, I know it's there because it runs like the proverbial clock, never missing a beat, never missing a second. That didn't just happen. It's very obvious, uh, no matter how we try to think about it, that somehow someone had to, some thing or something had to do to put that together. So question again, how do we come to know this God? Well, verse 21 again, God, the creator, was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The word believe here is important. The devil believes the gospel. He's absolutely orthodox. But to believe is to put one's full trust in the content of the message. To believe the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the only remedy for my personal sin and the only entrance to heaven. If we were drowning in the sea and saw a barrel floating past you, the only way you could be saved was to put your full weight on the barrel. If it holds your weight, then you'll be saved from drowning. We must put our full weight of belief on the truthfulness of the gospel message, and it will keep us from eternal damnation. Gordon Fee writes, through the foolishness of the event of the cross, and precisely because it stands in contradiction to ordinary human wisdom, it is only for those who believe, for those who will take the risk and put their whole weight or trust in God to save this way. But the problem is, we sinful human beings want God to conform to our idea of who God is and how he operates. We want God on our terms. So says Paul to the Jews, verse 22, Jews demand signs. Uh, they had a history of the miraculous, the creation, the crossing of the Red Sea, the fall of Jericho. They had God all figured out. And they knew that the Messiah would come and defeat their enemies and perform miraculous signs, and then they would rally behind him and take over the government. Jesus was repeatedly asked to do miracles. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, the, uh, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, uh, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Prove your God. Give us a miracle, a miraculous sign. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, so I'll be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So if you want to have a miracle, there's your miracle. That's the Jews, verse 22 still. And the Greeks, they look for wisdom. The Greeks had their philosophies. They were intellectually impressive. What they learned had changed the way people thought. Their wisdom had caused the belief in superstitious gods and replaced that belief with reason. They saw God as ultimate reason. 
through their considerable human intelligence, they come up with a God they could understand and control. The philosopher Celsius was a second century critic of Christianity. He really understood the gospel clearly, and he wrote these words. God is good and beautiful and happy and is in that which is most beautiful and best. And if then he descends to men, that's the incarnation, it involves change for him and change from good to bad, from the beautiful to ugly, from happiness to unhappiness, from what is best to what is worse. Who would choose such a change? God would never accept such a change. You can tell he knew the gospel, but he didn't believe it. Now, verse 23 goes on, and Paul says, but we preach, herald, we, uh, we herald out the gospel of Christ, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, the foolishness of the cross, which for the Jews represented someone who was cursed, and for the Gentiles was simply ridiculous. The cross did not become a symbol for Christianity for 100 years after Jesus rose from the dead. For the Jew of Jesus' day, anyone killed on the cross was cursed by God. It said so in their Bibles, Deuteronomy 21-23, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. That's right, Jesus became a curse for us so we can have freedom and, and go to heaven. The phrase crucified Messiah in that day for the Jews would be like advertising boiled ice. It's impossible. A stumbling block for sure. The Gentiles, Romans, Greeks considered anyone insane if they suggested the Savior of the world was so weak he was crucified by those he was trying to save. Foolishness, they would say. Verse 24 now. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the Messiah, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So now we have the conclusion of the matter, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. If God could be foolish then that foolishness would be wiser than the wisest, wisest man humanity ever produced. If God could become weak, then that weakness would be stronger than the strongest man ever to have been born. With all our so-called wisdom, with all our so-called reason and our modern technology, we still have not come up with any way to create peace on earth, and certainly we have no idea how to create personal peace without an abundance of drugs, multiple religions, and psychiatric opinions. By any measure, our wisdom has completely failed. But God has proven he knows better. The preaching of the gospel has produced men and women for 2,000 years who died in joyful expectation of meeting their Lord and Savior, the crucified Christ, face to face. Surely God's wisdom is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So now Paul reminds the Corinthian believers of who most of them were before they responded to the message of the cross. And in verse 26, brothers and sisters, 
think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Uh, the Corinthian church was made up of freed slaves and people of no influence, and certainly most of them had no impressive ancestry. But notice Paul did say, not many of you. Therefore, among the believers, there must have been some who were pretty sharp and influential with impressive family backgrounds, but not many. There was a woman in uh, Charles and Wesley's day who uh, was very, very wealthy. And she sort of paid for a lot of Christian ministry, and she was of nobility, hugely important. And she used to tell people that she was saved by M. M, you were saved by M. Yep, I was saved by the letter M. Uh, Paul says, not many of you. He didn't say, not any of you. The letter of M saved me. So you see, the gospel is for everybody, no matter where they're at. And the point is that God didn't take our wisdom or influence into account when he called us. If salvation were like the wisdom of the Greeks or the religion of the Jews, it's unlikely most of them would have been chosen, would have been called, or would have been saved. If we think about it rightly, we should all be amazed. I'm amazed that God called me. Some of you are amazed that God called me. I certainly can't say God made a great choice, but I am glad he called, and I have never regretted responding to that undeserved call. Verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world, like Pastor Carl, to shame the wise, and God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and he chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. We, this is important. We must not see these verses as a put-down on the Corinthian church or on us. These verses show the marvelous grace of God. Our worldly status is irrelevant regarding salvation. The ground is level at the cross. No one has an advantage over another. And in the last two verses, verse 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. Wisdom, yes. A righteousness, holiness, and redemption. We were made righteous before God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have been set apart for the purposes of God, made holy because of the wisdom of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have been redeemed. It's a word that sets slaves free, like in Exodus. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're redeemed for all of eternity, not because anything we have done, but due to the wisdom of God, who is Christ, who died for our sins and was raised from the dead. Paul is saying, it's all about Jesus the Jesus way. Last verse. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now that's a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. And that's the way most people end their sermons 
on this passage. It's the way I end up the last two times I preached this passage. But I've chosen another verse instead. I'm going to the Apostle Paul's writing in Galatians chapter 6, and here's what he said. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Here's another way to say it. I'm dead to the world, and the world is dead to me. The world doesn't influence me anymore. I'm giving my all, all through my life, for every aspect of my life. Whatever that brings me is only because of God. And so I would end by saying, I want to boast about Jesus because he chose me when there were so many others better than me. But he, he did choose me. And for that, I will boast and not be ashamed. And that's the same for every one of you here right now who are followers of Jesus. Paul wrote in Romans right, right near the first, well, in the first chapter, chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That's a Christian. Everyone who believes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. First, Jesus came to the Jews and then to everybody else, to the Gentiles. So I just want to end with a question. Are you here today? Are you watching online and you've never called on the name of the Lord? You've never asked him to come into your life. I had someone ask me recently, if you become a Christian, is it okay not to tell anybody? Like, can you not tell anybody? And I said, uh, no, it's not. Well, what if you're in solitary confinement or something? Well, you can tell God. You can praise him. But if you have become a Christian, you can't stop telling anybody. And if you think you become a Christian, you don't want to tell anybody, you probably haven't. I mean, think what's happened. You were on the way to hell. You're now on the way to heaven. You now have the ability to live a life you couldn't have lived before. Jesus died for your sins. If you understand all that, and then you ask him to come into your life, your first response should be, wow, my life has changed. I've got hope now. And so, yes, when you become a Christian, you'll want to tell everybody, and people will know anyhow if you've really become a Christian because you have the way you've lived. In my case, it made everybody in the office hate me at first <laughs> because I had changed so much, even in the words I spoke in the language and all of that, and I told them all about Jesus. But that's what we're supposed to do. And so if you really want to live a life that's exciting and you never become a Christian, you'll never find as much excitement as you will by being a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, oh, you'll have times where you're so discouraged you can already believe it. It'll be mostly because somebody else isn't doing what you would really like them to do for the sake of the Lord. Uh, there'll be times where you'll have doubts, but God will always come in and take over and lead you in the right way, and you'll be sanctified and glorified and in heaven forever. So if you've never received Jesus, do not let this day go by without doing it. You just need to pray a simple prayer saying, Dear Jesus, I believe 
uh, that you're God. I definitely am a sinner. I need to be saved. I, I want to be free the way I've heard about in sermons, even this particular sermon. I want to be free of the slavery of sin. Please come into my life right now and change me. And he will. Guarantee it. He will. And then you want to tell everybody you can and if you need to know more than that and know how to go on from there, you can just you can call me. My number is always on the screen at the end. So let's stand together and pray and then worship one final time. Dear Father, I so much thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your love. I thank you for the happiness that you bring to people. Father, we... We talk about happiness wrong sometimes. It's okay to be happy. You use the word blessed. It's better than the word happy. Blessed with spiritual realities. And if there's anyone here today or online that has never received you, I pray that they'll do that today and just pray and ask you to come into their life. And then, Father, help us to help them to grow as Christians, to be sanctified and eventually glorified. So thank you for eternal life uh, thank you for the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to live that life now. And I thank you for your word that teaches us how to live that life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.